now look back and we can just be absolutely amazed at what we've been able to learn and how we're able to use this information just six decades on, seven, de seven decades on since the discovery, almost since the discovery of the structure of DNA. Um, just what we're able to do today, we could, nobody could ever have fathomed it in those early days. Welcome to Intersections, where we navigate the crossroads of ideas, mapping the contours of belief and knowledge through the stories and lives of influential voices. On each episode, we visit with notable individuals in various fields who are asking important questions and whose experiences and perspectives challenge us to pursue lives of meaning and purpose. various fields of science reveal to us the mysteries of nature, and the science of genetics uncovers the basic building blocks of living organisms. Yet with all the scientific knowledge humanity has acquired over the centuries, there are still many questions that remain unanswered and still depend on the area of belief. But are belief and scientific knowledge incompatible? Is one based on facts and objective research and the other merely subjective opinion? Well, on this episode of Intersections, we have with us Dr. Daryl Falk. Daryl Falk is an author and genetic biologist who has worked in the fields of molecular and developmental genetics for decades. He received his Bachelor of Science from Simon Fraser University and earned his PhD from the University of Alberta. From 2009 to 2012, he was the president of BioLogos, an organization that seeks to reconcile science and faith. He has taught biology at universities throughout North America and is the author of the book, Coming to Peace with Science. He's been a member of the American Association for the Advancement of Science, the Genetic Society of America, and the American Scientific Affiliation. Daryl, welcome to Intersections. It's, it's good to be here. Thank you. Good to have you. Um, so in, in learning about your work, much of your work that you've done has focused or focused in the past on the fruit fly. And I'm curious if you could talk, why did you choose the fruit fly uh, to do your research? Sure. So my, my early research was uh, on the fruit fly Drosophila, did my PhD in that area, went on to do postdoctoral work uh, with uh, David Suzuki, pretty well known in Canada, and at that point was the, probably the Canadian leader in Drosophila genetics, uh, this fruit, little fruit fly, and then on to University of California, Irvine, and began my career at Syracuse University as a researcher in the area of Drosophila genetics. And so why, why working, the question, why work with a little fly and, uh, and especially as, how, as it relates to the significance to uh, human beings and, uh, and medicine. Um, it turns out, and we, we, we were strongly suspicious back there in those early years that, um, that what we learned about uh, how the genes work in a, in a little fly um, would, apply and be helpful in understanding how genes work in humans. Uh, and so that was the rationale for working with Drosophila as a, um, as a research organism. We had no idea at that point still just how similar gene function would be. That is what we've learned now in intervening years about how the little fruit fly develops from the time of fertilized egg until it becomes a full-fledged adult. Uh, many of the same genes working in very much the same way are involved. But what we can do and what we've been able to do in Drosophila, we've been able to manipulate those genes in a much more refined level than what we could have, especially in the early days. Things are changing now as a result of uh, tremendous technical, technical advances uh, in, um, in doing research as it relates to human genes and human, human genes. 
But in those days, um, to be able to manipulate the genes in a sophisticated fashion could never be done with, with humans in the way that it could be done with little fruit flies with their short um, life cycle, uh, many, studying many organisms, which has um, been important for, um, for studying genes. You need to be able to do crosses and analyze large numbers of organisms. You couldn't, you couldn't do that in anywhere near the same kind of refined level um, with, with humans. So tremendous amount has been learned about how genes work in humans and human, and human diseases. Many of the same genes, many of the same disease, genes that cause disease in humans, including cancer, are also found um, within those little fruit flies. Hmm. Were there any particular discoveries that you made in that research that have translated over to humans? Uh, no, my work was, I would say, no, I'm just part of the, part of the community. And, uh, and so like, uh, like, uh, many of the Drosophila workers in those days, we were all continue, continuing to contribute together. My research was specifically related to trying to uh, understand genes, develop the technology, which by that point, this is in the, uh, this is a long time ago, back in the late, uh, 19, early 1970s. And at that point in time, um, we knew an awful lot about how genes work and function in bacteria by going to the biochemical level, studying genes at the bio, genes and, and what they're doing at the biochemical level. But at that point, almost nothing had been done yet uh, in higher organisms, organisms that are more than just single cells. And uh, even though little fruit flies seem, seem pretty, pretty tiny, um, and they are pretty tiny, uh, but compared to bacteria, uh, what we didn't know at that point um, was just how we get down to the biochemical level, how we, how we can study the molecules that are associated with, um, with gene activity. And so my work was involved specifically in developing techniques that have been very successful for bacteria and apply them to Drosophila, this little fruit fly, so we can get down to the molecular level. And I was just one of a, a whole set of people that were interested in that question, and I contributed a small amount um, to that to that area. But um, it was it was just a part of the part of the community. Hmm. And, and then it looked like you had done some research. You actually um, determined the genome sequence of Salmonella, and is that correct? The the sequence of the Salmonella. I've, I've done some work. Uh, so I have a paper in that area. I, I didn't actually do any sequencing myself on that. I contributed to a paper related to Salmonella. So the work now in the, um, in the, in the set, in the, in the uh, university that I'm in right now, uh, I was working with a person who uh, was working with a group who was doing some work on uh, sequencing and analyzing uh, bacteria, uh, a virus that affects salmonella. So that's a particular paper. It was actually a pretty small part. I played a pretty small role in that, but, uh, I but I do have a paper in that area. Now, why is it important to genetically sequence um, organisms? Why is that an important part of, of your field? So um, the, the person that I worked, you've mentioned that I started, uh, that I was involved in the early days of uh, Biologos. I was the president of Biologos for a while. And the person I worked with then has actually, uh, his name is Francis Collins, and he's responsible for uh, leading the effort to sequence the human genome. And what that means is to decipher the code uh, of, of um, the instruction code, the instruction manual that's involved in making and maintaining the human body. And uh, so the reason why sequencing, that's determining the 
that's determining the code is what it is. There's, you know, genes are basically a code with instructions on how to make particular parts of the human body or uh, whatever the organism is. And uh, so it's in the form of a code. And so what, what the people who've been doing this, I'm, my own role in that has been minuscule, but, but on the other hand, people I've worked with, Francis Collins, has been extremely important in, um, in deciphering that code and, and determining that code gene by gene. So important uh, from the perspective of various genetic diseases as we, as we work to the point of um, trying to understand um, the molecular basis of diseases so that we can bring about cures for those diseases. Um, it's just so important to, to, and so valuable to be able to actually decipher the code um, for all of the genes that are involved in metabolism and, uh, and growth and development of human beings and all organisms. Well, that's what I was wondering. Are, they, are, they, are scientists working on, on the sequence of all organisms right now, not just the human? Um, many, many organisms. Yeah. I mean, there's, uh, there's, um, we can't say all organisms. There's probably some, there's probably some 10 million different species. Um, but a large library of organisms will be sequenced as time goes by and it's well underway. I see. I see. Um, and indeed for individual humans, um, individual humans. So speaking in terms of, of our own genome, mine and yours, for example, uh, it's now in the process of, of um, being uh, possible to do the sequence of any given individual's uh, genome all the way through, which is three, three billion uh, units of code, uh, that, can, that will be done for a couple of hundred dollars. And that's uh, very, very close to reality right now hmm. for any given person. How did you personally get interested in pursuing a career in genetics? Um, so, it was certainly not something that I uh, was pursuing at the very at the very beginning. I was originally going to be like a number of people in biology. Uh, I was originally thinking I would um, go into medicine and uh, and directly and get an MD degree. So I was a pre med student briefly, um, but at that point, this was a long time ago. So as a, as an undergraduate, this was the mid 1960s. So. Uh, and um, at that point, the, genet the genetic code had just been deciphered. Um, how genes work and what they do, at, even in the simple organisms, bacteria, had just been discovered. It was so exciting. And so I learned about it all for the first time. It wasn't even in my high school classes, how you know, DNA was, had been discovered in 1954. So it had been discovered 10 years earlier. That Watson and those, Crick. Watson yeah, and Watson Crick. and Crick, absolutely. Right, yeah. mm -hmm. but, but it was not in my... Um, up there in um, Vancouver, Canada, for whatever reason, um, it was not in my high school course yet. But so when I got to when I got to college, and there I was learning about um, DNA and RNA, the code of life, and how and how um, that code of life is read using uh, special molecules known as transfer RNA and little little machines known as ribosomes. Uh, how that all worked was just being discovered, but it was there in my introductory course. And it was unbelievably beautiful as far as I was concerned. So from that point on, I made, some I made a decision. I said, um, as important as what it would have been to be a medical doctor, this is just so fascinating. I want to spend the rest of my life studying mm -hmm. how this works. I had no idea at that point um, just how you know, it was, DNA was only 10 years old in terms of, how, uh, in terms of understanding its structure. 
So I had no idea at that point just what would be ensuing in the next uh, 50 to 60 years. Mm. But um, we, we can now look back and we can just be absolutely amazed at what we've been able to learn and how we're able to use this information just six decades on, seven, de seven decades on since the discovery, almost since the discovery of the structure of DNA. Um, just what we're able to do today, we could, nobody could ever have fathomed it in those early days. Some of that has, has led to this whole field of bioethics, you know, it's kind of come up with the advancement in um, genetics with you know, manipulating genes. Um, and I, I know you taught bioethics at the university. Could you talk a little bit about that field of bioethics that I would imagine has come out of a lot of the advancements that have, that have happened in genetics and what that field is and, and what kind of things you taught about when you taught bioethics? Okay, I, I actually never did teach a course in bioethics. It's come up in various courses that I've taught. I'm not, uh, uh, so I haven't actually taught, I'm not a bioethicist. So I'm not somebody who has taught whole courses in bioethics. However, the field, I can speak as a geneticist who, because it has ramifications, genetics, especially today has ramifications for, um, for um, how, where we should be, where we, where we need to be thinking about drawing lines and what is, what is ethical and what is, what is not ethical as time goes by. And so I, I'd, I'd, I'd um, love to just mention briefly some of the concerns I think we have today, given the advancements that have taken place. So today we are now reaching the point where of course we are able to, um, we are able to analyze genes in ways that will allow us to treat various diseases. Um, medical, medical issues that we all struggle with, whether it be, I mean, that we know people that have struggled with, whether it be cystic fibrosis, whether it be uh, diseases, uh, even diseases that may not seem to have a genetic um, uh, origin, like for example, dementia, nonetheless, I mean, that's a cellular phenomenon within the brain of things going wrong within the brain or cancer. It's a phenomenon of things going on, going wrong with respect to how genes are being used. And so there's this tremendous potential of using this information, which I've been talking about um, for um, addressing genetic diseases. However, having said that, there's also this question of, of what we, are going to be, and, and now are on the verge of being able to do uh, in, in actually um, uh, manipulating genes at the will of, um, at the whim of, 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 of particular individuals who say, you know, parents might say, you know, I want to have a child um, that is, um, you know, going to be able to um, be an athlete. And, um, so we're at the point now of being able to, um, at the point now, almost at the point of being able to identify various genes that may well be important in say influencing height in a significant ways or uh, genes that influence other attributes. Um, we're not quite there yet, but we're in that process. There's a lot of genes that, are, that influence height. There's gonna be a lot of genes that influence other aspects of um, other aspects of, of uh, say, um, muscle coordination and so on. Well, undoubtedly a lot of genes. But what is now being done is to identify that battery of genes that are important in that direction. And so it will be possible um, to be able to identify embryos 
that have a collection of genes that have that collection of genes that would be have a high probability of say leading to perhaps a higher level of intelligence, uh, perhaps a, a high and perhaps taller individuals, maybe that playing um, basketball where height's a great advantage. Um, undoubtedly others, I mean, we can just let our imagination go. The question is, um, the question, and, and just to say something about how that can be done, how you can, how you can characterize that, even today with technology, um, not to say we have identified all those genes yet. I don't want to, I don't want to take this too far, but, but nonetheless, we have the technology today to be able to um, analyze, to fertilize um, a sperm, you take a sperm and an egg and fertilize, and carry out fertilization, in vitro fertilization, start a set of embryos from, from two parents, um, who, um, who decide they want to have a child, but they decide to go with in vitro fertilization because maybe they want to select uh, from a set of 10 embryos. And uh, they, they, it might be because there's a, there's a chance that they have a, will have a child with cystic fibrosis. So they want to make sure they select an embryo that doesn't have cystic fibrosis. But they're also, um, they also are, now this is where we get into the other part, which is not too far away, I don't think where we would be able to say, well, I'd like to have a child. And so let's, who is, um, who's tall? Uh, can you ensure, can you look at the genes of that 10 embryo, those 10 embryos, sequence the DNA of those 10 embryos and identify embryos, which have a, they, they, they have, have a particular score, uh, which would increase the probability of having say over six feet uh, in, in height. That's the kind of thing mm. Um, which is on the horizon. Uh, how far down the horizon? Uh, I don't want to predict. The technology for in vitro fertilization, of course, is there. Embryo selection is there. Uh, being able to sequence the DNA and embryos is there. What's still a little bit up, uh, still being developed is identifying genes that would uh, allow you to make that score for those embryos. That's, um, that's, but that's probably not very far away. Uh, that's probably within a decade or two. So, um, so, um, that kind of thing leads to huge questions on the horizon where it's one thing to say, we're gonna use this information to decrease the probability of a, of a person having a child with cystic fibrosis um, and have to, having to go through all the, the struggles and the pain that children with cystic children and, and, and adult individuals go through with, uh, with, that, with that genetic, genetic disease. Um, but it's another thing to say, well, but I'm going to have a child with such and such a set of traits. And, um, and that's, um, that we as a society need to, be, um, need to be dealing with and need to be studying and reaching conclusions as to where do we draw the line and uh, how do we go about deciding where to draw the line? Um, those are the kinds of questions on the horizon. Yes. Reminds me of uh, Brave New World, although it's Huxley, which Absolutely. talked about this very thing. Um, you're listening to Intersections on uh, KSQD, and we're talking to Dr. Daryl Falk, who's a, a genetic biologist and an author. And we're talking um, this evening about the work that he does. You, so we're talking about, um, you know, um, genetic, genetically modifying or choosing genes of humans. And you talked about kind of the need for lines and boundaries um, what, what, what do you feel are the principles that scientists at people working on this research should look to, to make those kinds of decisions? Um, so that's a, that's a great question. And, um, so, but it's also a bioethicist question of which, I mean, I'm not a bioethicist, but I can, 
but I nonetheless, I, I can uh, address that question. I'm a Christian and uh, I believe that um, humans were created uh, in the image of God. And I believe that uh, that impacts how we value human life and uh, in individuals. Uh, I've also found that in general scientists, even as a Christian, um, that, that there are not that significant, that there's not significant differences. We all value human life uh, pretty much. So, so as far as the principles are concerned, I think that we can say together as a group, regardless of our particular philosophical group, we can, we can all, all say, always say that, um, that it, we ought to be very, very careful about engineering, the potential of engineering new forms of humanity. We have no uh, understanding of the ramifications of, of manipulating genes in society, whether it be uh, manipulating genes for intelligence, for example. We have no idea what that, what that would do. And let me give you a little example. So, so though I come at this from a Christian perspective, I also find that the people who have a different perspective from me in terms of, their, uh, in terms of whether they have a Christian faith or not, we all value uh, humankind. What we don't know is the ramifications of the changes that we're going to be making, regardless of our perspective um, as to whether, you know, the, the, the question of um, the, the nature of whether humans are created in the image of God or not. We all value humankind. But let me give you an example of a concern that I would have. So in Iceland, for example, um, there have been, um, uh, it's now possible, I mean, it's possible anywhere, but Iceland is, is an example of a, a country that is, and Denmark has taken this uh, to heart in a way that's maybe a little more extreme than it would be in some cases. And so uh, it's possible to identify uh, fetuses that um, are going to be Down syndrome. And, um, and, one, and the parents then can make a decision as to whether they're gonna have this Down syndrome child. In Iceland today, Denmark as well, um, there are not very many children born right now that have Down syndrome, but there are some. And so um, there's a really nice, really important, I think, um, interview that was on um, PBS not too long ago, um, in, which the, um, in which a Down syndrome person um, was um, interviewed and kind of said, well, what do you think about, um, I mean, pretty intelligent and articulate person with Down syndrome. And um, she, she said I, I, something to the effect of just, I just wish people would see, I don't think the word was value that I have, but, um, but it was something like that. There was this sense of, um, I'm, I'm not considered to be very important. Mm. Um, well, from my perspective, um, that that's the we get going that direction of making like several classes of people where um, where where some people select for certain traits and the movie, movie Gattaca is one of my favorite movies you may have seen it um, and and so if we have this these people that um, have been engineered in some fashion and like removing Down syndrome children which is right there right now. 
um, is an example of where we could be heading unless we are being very careful. So in terms of the principle, it's the value of the human being along the way, but also being so careful, we just don't know enough at this point with respect to the ramifications of manipulating um, manipulating society in that kind of way. But I will say one more thing about what we don't know. Mm -hmm. And that is, we also don't know as we manipulate genes, we don't know at this point whether, you know, our knowledge of genetics is tremendous, but we also don't really know um, whether manipulation of all the, all, that's, all the ramifications of manipulating the genes within a particular human body, never mind culture as a whole, but even within a particular human body, if we manipulate those genes, especially if we manipulate those genes in the germline, that is the, the, uh, the cells that give rise to sperm and eggs and thereby contribute to the next generation, mm. we're manipulating genes that are not ours. We're manipulating the genes of our children, our grandchildren, our great-grandchildren and so on. And we're doing that without their permission. And we all, we, even though we know an awful lot about genetics and how genes work, um, there, we're at the stage still where we could make manipulations that, um, that cause harm that we haven't foreseen within the body itself, never mind call, in addition to the cultural issues I've talked about. Science scientists, as the next you know decade emerges, and it's kind of already happening in Scandinavia, um, having to wrestle with these issues. Uh, are you concerned about that? Um, what kind of framework people are using? Are you concerned about different strains of thought within the scientific community about these sorts of issues? Yes. So I, I believe I think that there needs to be commissions set in. I think this is scientists who are working in this area uh, would be stressing are stressing today the significance of getting public discourse uh, from all different perspectives, from all different walks of life. It can't be just a group of scientists. It can't even be just a group of bioethicists. It needs to be the public sitting down um, and together and, and, and the commissions need to be taking place. We also need to be taken into account as we think about this. I mean, this is, a, this is a, um, an international issue as well because not all countries are going to come at this from the same perspective. And, uh, and, and so it's so important that countries, to get, uh, countries get together and be thinking together uh, about, um, about the ramifications and where we as, as society, as societies will be wanting to draw the line. So discussion at this point, both within, this, within a single country, but then also, at the same time, as best as what we can, um, as we do, for example, with respect to climate change, um, getting together and uh, with from the various countries and saying, what, where do we, where can we all agree we should draw the lines and have those discussions quickly as soon as possible because the the um, the field is just moving along too fast. Mm. You're listening to KSQD Santa Cruz, and we're talking tonight with Dr. Daryl Falk on intersections. Um, and our discussion here about uh, his work as a genetic uh, biologist. Um, you mentioned your Christian faith and you're dealing with the whole area of belief and faith. 
often that's presented, you know, you're, you're a scientist who has a Christian faith. Often science and faith are presented as opposites. Um, you either believe in science or you have this sort of belief in things that you can't see. How do you personally reconcile or how do those work together, your faith and your work as a scientist? Okay, that's a, that's a great question and an important question um, that, that I've wrestled with uh, throughout my um, throughout my life. Um, so I was, I was brought up within a uh, Christian home. And uh, that means that um, I was brought up, at least within the particular Christian home that I grew up in, um, that I, we took the Bible um, pretty literally. And, um, and so I knew I was, you know, I was just this, just a child. And uh, I didn't know anything at all about science uh, at all, but of course I did know that um, that there was this whole group of people that I could quickly learn about um, in uh, in my studies uh, in even seventh grade um, that that thought that we were that humans had emerged through evolution, and uh, there was this um, there were these diagrams. These, I remember still my one of my textbooks from when I was in seventh grade with the Neanderthal man and the Cro-Magnon man. That's what we called them in those days. I'm not to say that we, we use that term man in a, in a way that we wouldn't use it today. And there was, um, and then there was modern humans. And, um, and so uh, I, I knew that these were very smart people. And yet here I was um, growing up in a home um, where um, we believed the Bible was the word of God and it just described human, it described the creation account in a very different way. And so I, I, I actually struggled with that from the time I was um, uh, 10 and 11 years old of all the particular perspectives in the world. How did I just happen to get born into the right one? Uh, maybe, maybe these other perspectives are right too. So I struggled mightily with that. Um, as a child and on into uh, and on into university. So um, to answer your, your question as it comes to um, how I dealt with it, this and as an adult and, and as a scientist, um, it was uh, it was right there at the forefront, always was at the forefront of my trying to understand because I had I thought I had experienced the Christian faith growing up. I thought I saw the beauty of the Christian faith and the lives of my parents and the lives of the people around me. Um, I had a strong conviction that Christianity was true, but I also knew that it was almost as though, um, it's almost as though I thought maybe it's too good to be true. Um, and so the question I always had was maybe it's not, you know, maybe it's, um, it's my, I'm, I'm wishing it to be true. And that's why it's true for me. So that was always the question. Is it just simply that I'm wishing it to be true? Or alternatively, is there, is there a way of bringing the two together? So um, any, any questions at this point that you'd no, like to ask? That's great. Okay. You're setting it up really well. Okay. <laughs> so um, so the, um, the question, now let me just say a little bit about my own personal background as a, as a an adult as a professor. I spent my first eight years as a professor in a secular research university, Syracuse University, which I, which I loved. It was a fantastic experience. But I, I made the decision um, when I was in my late 30s that I really thought I wanted to work within a, 
in a Christian college setting um, with students who probably struggled in the way that I had struggled and maybe was still struggling a little bit uh, even then. And uh, so I made the decision that really I, I wanted to move into that kind of a setting so that I could um, help the student, I guess, as biologist who had, who by that point had pretty much brought the two together in my own mind, um, would be able to be there for my students and for students from a similar background. So um, uh, I, um, uh, there were no, no books that I knew of. Uh, so now this goes back into the uh, mid nineties and I'd been now in a Christian college setting for about 10 years. Uh, and there were no books that I knew of that were by a biologist that was really showing how biology and Christian faith need not be in conflict. There were some by physicists, by physical scientists, but I didn't, and, and maybe some, the, and some theologians, but, but, but they weren't biologically oriented. And so I had, I felt as though I had a responsibility. Um, somebody did, and I didn't know who it would be, but somebody had a responsibility to address this, not just simply in the classroom or sitting down having conversation, but in a way that would, um, would, would be um, written down. So, um, so I sat down to uh, write a, well, I might just say, no, I think I'll just leave it at that. I'll, I'll say, I think I'll, uh, no, I will say. So I was in a Christian college setting and, and that meant that I taught that there was no conflict between evolution, the science of evolution and the science of, and, and, and the Christian faith. Well, there were not, there were some parents that did not agree with me. And so, um, there, and, um, and so um, it was a bit of a question mark as to whether or not uh, a perspective like I had ought to be at my Christian university setting. And so I sat down then and said, you know, I've just, some, if nobody else is gonna write this, I've gotta sit down and write and say, here's why there need, we need not be worrying about this. Hmm. So I, I wrote the book Coming to Peace with Science as a result of that. And, um, and it was published in, um, in, in 2004. Uh, it brought me together with, although I myself, um, my, I consider myself having moved uh, from a research university setting uh, many, quote, many years ago into a Christian college setting where my emphasis has been on teaching, not so much on research in a Christian, because the teaching loads are very heavy. So I, so I was teaching more than researching. But when I wrote this, when I wrote this book, I sent it to, um, to Francis Collins, who've already mentioned, and said, I did not know him at all. I said, would you mind, would you consider writing the foreword for this book? And I, I told him that uh, some of the struggles that I'd had, actually my job had been called into question. That's how serious it, it was that I should not even be there. And, and, um, and there was a lot of a significant calling call for me to, um, to move on out, away from a Christian college setting because of my views on, um, my views on evolution. So I, I told Francis about my experience teaching in a Christian college setting. And I said, would you, would you consider reading this? And if you're in reasonable agreement with it, um, would you write the foreword? So here he was in the middle of the Human Genome Project, leading one of the most important um, projects in the history of biology. And, uh, and I knew that he also had a Christian faith. I'd, I'd heard that, but I did not know him. And uh, so um, I sent him, sent him the book just cold 
and said, would you consider writing? And it took him a little while because of how busy he was um, um, to be able to, and, and people get manuscripts from somebody they never heard of. And of course, why would you, why would you take the time to read this manuscript that's just come in when you got a, a thousand other manuscripts you're supposed to be reviewing and grant proposals and so on. And uh, so it took him a little while and I probably had to send a couple of prompts to him saying, any chance you might've had a chance to look at that? So he wrote the foreword though. He eventually did uh, find the time. And I was, this day, I'm so appreciative that, that he did take the, find the time to, um, to read the manuscript and, uh, and, and agreed to write the foreword. And, um, and so what, we, what the perspective is, I'll just summarize this, but you can ask him any questions if you like. Um, there isn't a conflict between the Bible and, and, uh, and evolution. Um, the, the, the Bible is not a science textbook. And, um, and, and there are people who think that they should be able to look at the Bible and, and think that Bible is written for the, has written as sort of like a, a, a knowledge base for everything. And, um, and, and it's just not a science textbook. Nobody would have understood it 2,000, 3,000 years ago if they tried to, if the Bible was trying to write a scientific account of how we came to be. And uh, so the purpose of the Bible is to, um, is to help us to understand that we are loved by God, that we are not just simply floating free in a universe um, without purpose and without meaning and, uh, and, and just here by random chance, that we are here because, because God wants to be in relationship with other, with other beings that have a, um, which have, which have a, um, a, an ability to understand and think. And I'm not to say that it's only all about humans. Um, for sure it's not. God loves creation, period. But, but God also loves us. And so, um, and so there isn't a conflict as I see it. The evolution is, evolution is describing how God, uh, God's process works, and, but it's all God's process. And, uh, and so um, that's what I describe in my book. Francis wrote his own book um, uh, a year or two later, 2006, summer 2006 book came, book came out, The Language of God. Uh, it's a fantastic book, um, which describes the genetics in a lot more detail than I did and, um, and, and points out, I think wonderfully, some of the challenges associated with other ways that people have used to try to bring the Bible together with science. Um, uh, he's, he's hard, for example, I mean, France, uh, he, he points out that science is not a, the Bible's not a science textbook. And he expresses some concerns about the intelligent design movement, which seems to think that the leaders of that group seems to think you can use science to prove there's a, a God. And so they try their best uh, in, in, in to use um, scientific endeavor to, to show scientifically and put God to the test scientifically as a hypothesis. And, uh, and so Francis, is, uh, Francis addresses that question in his book uh, saying it's not um, that the intelligent design, there's been challenges and problems associated with the intelligent design movement. And certainly the people who believe that the earth is young are out of touch with respect to scientific reality. Uh, there's people who are in, uh, in a, an old earth camp, which would say that, which would say that um, 
that the earth is old, but that God still created species one at a time, um, and uh, including humans, and uh, and that's not consistent with the genetic data. And so uh, Francis addresses these kinds of questions in his book really wonderfully, the language of God. So what are what maybe summarize the the three main camps in as Christians have tried to understand the origin of life and and these questions. Um, my understanding is they come down to sort of three main camps. Um, could you just talk briefly what those three are and, and then where you fall on those? Okay, yeah. So, um, so young earth creationists would, and of which there's a very large number, of course, in, in, in um, America and Canada and uh, the world, um, but it's actually American and Canadian phenomenon, not quite so prevalent in, uh, in Great Britain but, uh, and, and other countries. But um, so in this view, the Bible is a scientific textbook. And so if you're taking the Bible literally, um, what, everything that has to, I mean, it, you can get science. The Bible is without error in every respect. So if, it's, if it seems to be saying something that sounds scientific, it's, 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 it's not an error. So that's the young earth perspective. Earth is about 6,000 to 10,000 years old. Um, evolution has not taken place outside of um, small changes within particular kinds, they would say. So they would agree that there could be some changes within kinds, but, um, but, um, but no evolution on a grand scale. The old earth perspective, um, and, and so for example, answers in Genesis in, you know, in Kentucky, they have a a big museum that I've been to. And then they have another one called, another museum called the Ark Encounter. Millions and millions of dollars have been spent on this. Um, and thousands and thousands of visitors, tens of thousands of visitors passing through every year, hundreds of thousands, I guess. Don't know that number for sure. Um, and so that's, that's the young earth perspective. The old earth perspective is um, a perspective which, um, is represented best by an organization, I think, called Reasons. I think it's represented best by an organization called Reasons to Believe, which is based in uh, Greater Los Angeles. And this is a perspective that um, this, the founder of the organization, and until just recently, the president, Hugh Ross, um, is a astronomer with a PhD in astronomy and um, really good credentials. And uh, and so, from his perspective as an astronomer. Um, as astrophysicist, he, um, he has no problem at all with the age of the earth, and he's able to find ways that um, he thinks that the Bible is consistent with that. Um, he reads the Bible a little differently, but he's, able to, um, but he's able to use his reading of the Bible to say, no, the earth is, is old. But when it comes to biology, on the other hand, um, it's a different matter. And he's, as he sees it, the Bible, um, when it comes to biology, makes it very clear that he, every species was created in some unique fashion from scratch, uh, especially humankind. I imagine he has, I'm sure he has some um, allowance for evolution within kinds like the young earth people do. Um, he has no problems with the age of the earth, but it, when it comes to humans, they were created from scratch. Um, and um, and uh, maybe 200,000 years ago, fine, but, um, but from scratch with a specific in pair, Adam and Eve. Um, and then uh, the third major group that you're speaking of, there's intelligent design. It's hard to know where they fit because, um, because um, uh, there are people in intelligent design who are young earth, people in intelligent design who's old earth. And there's people in intelligent design who are in the third category, which I'm going to describe in just a second. Um, 
the thing about intelligent design, which people hear a lot about, so that's why I'm wanting to mention it, is um, that the fundamental point about intelligent design is, as I mentioned, that you can test the existence of creation through scientific analysis. And so scientific analysis, uh, you can form a hypothesis much like you do other scientific hypotheses about creation and, um, and demonstrate scientifically that, that it's the best explanation. Um, and so it doesn't fit clearly into any one of those camps. So the third major group is um, evolutionary creation, sometimes also known as theistic evolution. And so this is the position that uh, God has created through the evolutionary process. There's different ways of thinking about the activity of God um, in that process. Uh, some people would say that it's all God's process and that because of God's spirit and presence, it continues. That's upholding the whole universe. In a sense, God's presence, God's spirit and the activity of God's spirit is upholding the whole universe. If God was to somehow, you know, in theory at least, disappear from reality, um, then it wouldn't just simply be that um, everything would kind of wind down. Everything would simply disappear to nothingness because, um, because the spirit is upholding it all. And so so many people within the theistic um, evolution or evolutionary creation would probably put the, many of them would probably put an emphasis upon this as all gods, it's all being maintained as a result of the um, ongoing presence of God in the universe. Um, there is another little subdivision, I guess, within that. Uh, and that is that, no, it's not quite all, um, that there are times where maybe some special, hmm, I don't really want to use a supernatural, the word supernatural activity, but maybe some things, some, some events take place perhaps and whether we can pinpoint them and, and, and my own position is we can't pinpoint them. And that's what the intelligent design people try to do. They try to use science to say, this is an example where there was some sort of maybe supernatural, if I, want to, if I do want to use that term or some different way of the natural laws working. Um, and, um, and I just don't think you can, the science is, is, is able to precisely point to those kinds of things. Uh, I feel strongly about that. But nonetheless, there may well be some, some activity where some special activity or ways in which God is working that um, is a little different than it is at other times. And it's been important in bringing and carrying uh, the evolutionary process in the direction that God chooses the evolution um, to work. put yourself in the camp of uh, theistic of theistic evolution you mentioned yeah evolutionary, evolutionary creation is what most of us use that use that term now because we we prefer to think of it in terms of creation it's god's creative activity and so that's how you back to the question earlier you've reconciled faith your faith as a christian that you said you mentioned you grew up in a christian home with evolution where now in in the world of <clears throat> well in the in the world of 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 the Christian faith in America, is that a pretty minority opinion, would you say? Would you say more people fall into the intelligent design or the young earth creationism camp? Um, let me see. Let me think about the statistics on that. Um, 
there's a, a poll done by Gallup. It's been done every year since about 19, not every year, but every few years since 1983. And it asks the question as to um, uh, how one thinks specifically this survey is about human origins. And so if one asks the question, uh, do you think that the earth, that God created the earth in its present form uh, within recent history, within the last 10,000 years, that number uh, in America is still around 43%. And um, young earth, in other words, and uh, humans being created uh, suddenly. Um, and I'm trying to think of, I can't remember the exact statistics. I mean, of course, about 20% of, I think it's about 19% would answer the question. There's, it all happened. There's no God, there's nothing. That's around 19%. And then there's the other perspective that it happened. There is a God and, um, and it, it happened because of the activity of God. And that number, I'm going to, I'm pulling these numbers off the top of my head, but say 25 or 30%, something like that. And yeah. so, so um, within Christianity, uh, within evangelical Christianity, certainly the majority of people within evangelical Christianity would probably be young earth, intelligent design, old earth. But there's still a significant number who would believe that, no, God created through the evolutionary process. That's a significant number as well. Within what we, you know, evangelical Christianity is now a loose term that means a lot of different things to different people. But if I define evangelical Christianity as those that believe um, that uh, we can enter into a personal relationship with God and that the Bible is telling us how to enter into that relationship with God, that group of people, I'm calling those, those people evangelical. I'm not using the political ramifications of that. Many of the, many people within the evangelical world um, would be quite uncomfortable with um, some of the things that uh, are now political things that are now presented in the context of evangelical Christianity. Yes, yes. Um, so you, you served as the president of BioLogos yes. for a few years, years back. Talk a little bit about BioLogos, who was founded by Dr. Colin, Francis Collins, who I guess is recently retiring from the National Institutes of Health, yes. was there for many, many years yes. uh, in our country. Um, so he founded BioLogos, you became the president. Tell us a little bit briefly about what is BioLogos? Um, so BioLogos Bio exists uh, to show that there need not be a conflict between science and, and uh, Christian faith, and even a uh, conservative in the sense of uh, uh, accepting, taking the Bible very seriously. And uh, even, even from that perspective, there is not a conflict. And so that's, that's the original purpose of, of BioLogos. And, um, and so uh, it was formed in 2007 by Francis Collins, basically just putting the organization together at first. And then um, the launch of BioLogos, a public launch, and by that time, uh, several, several of us had joined the organization, uh, April 2009. And uh, Francis was the president. We were just getting ready to do a public launch of the, of the organization. We'd just gotten a... Um, a sizable grant to allow, allow us to proceed um, with the um, with um, various dimensions of, uh, of of outreach with the biologus one of which would be a website and we were just about to launch the biologus website in april of 2009 uh, and at that point um, we were we were just a week or two away from all gathering in washington dc for the public launch of the website when Dr. Collins, uh, Francis Collins, uh, got on the line as the president of the uh, fledgling organization and saying, um, 
Uh, I'm being considered for the um, directorship of the National Institutes of Health, but I've been told that if I take that position, I would, it's a government position, I would not be able to be associated with any organization that has any uh, religious uh, connections at all. So I would have to resign from presidency of BioLogos. Mm -hmm. So as, a, as that summer, we went ahead with the launch um, nonetheless, and um, we knew we might lose our leader. And um, we um, proceeded, sure enough, he was appointed by uh, Obama in August of 2000, in the Senate in 2009 as the director of the NIH. And that left us then, um, so what are we gonna do? And uh, so um, initially uh, there was a small group of us that had worked with Francis in getting the organization started. And, uh, and we proceeded to uh, um, work hard on getting it, getting it going. Uh, there was a, uh, a group of us, a small group of us that were working together. Initially, I, I was co-president with, uh, with one other person, Carl Guyberson is his name. And uh, we ended up deciding that um, probably uh, it would be best to work with just a single leader. Then, or, and uh, so I ended up becoming uh, the president of BioLogos and Carl worked with me and as a, along with me, along with a, a, a wonderful group of others as we got BioLogos started. And at that point, we, we just weren't known. And so the, it was a very interesting question. How do you get something going? I mean, to begin with, we had Francis's name and he was so well known but now we no longer had Francis associated with it. So there were some very interesting challenges associated with how do we get this organization, which is going against the grain. Um, we believe that God created through the evolutionary process, not very many people in Christianity accept that. And so our task was to, uh, was to um, get our name out there and identify ourselves. So we had various ways of doing that. One of which was a, a conference where we were able to bring together and uh, a group of leaders of evangelical Christianity. And I use evangelical again in that sense that I talked about before. Um, and uh, people who take the Bible very seriously believe you can enter into a personal relationship with God. And, um, and uh, so there were a group of pastors and theologians and scientists that met together in New York City um, for a period of, um, uh, well, for one, once a year over a period of three or four years and uh, many of these were very well-known people. Uh, and, and, um, and so that was an important part of their influence and in being able to talk about Biologus as we move forward. So those early days, it was just a question of, um, of becoming well-known. And sometimes it was a little bit controversial. And sometimes we almost had to be a little controversial in order to, in order to become known. And, um, and so it was, a, it was a very interesting experience for me as just this college teacher um, to be able to um, uh, lead a movement uh, which would be um, trying to uh, have a significant influence on, um, on um, Christianity to move it away from this anti-science stance. We were so concerned, all of us, uh, that it was very harmful to Christianity um, for it to be associated with something with anti-science. If God is real, and, and, you know, we all, as science, scientists, um, we, we knew how solid the scientific evidence was. If, so if God is real, my goodness, um, how, could, how could we have this huge dichotomy between what Christianity seems to say and what, and what 
that which is God's process, the scientific process, seems to say it, it doesn't. It didn't make any sense, and so that was our task: was to show to to show that there could be a connect, that there is a connection, that they aren't in conflict, and uh, and to and to move forward from that. So I I am um, uh, retired as the president at the end of 2012, having uh, led the organization for two for three and a half years. And, um, and at that point, um, I, continued, um, I continued to serve in an advisory role, speaking, did some speaking and writing and, um, and so on. But um, the um, organization began to be led at that point by uh, Dr. Deb Harzma, Deborah Harzma, who's a uh, astrophysicist, astro astronomer actually. And she was at a, another college in Michigan. Uh, Calvin University. And uh, so she has led the organization since 2013. The organization under her leadership has continued to thrive marvelously and, uh, and is now um, well known within the, um, within the Christian faith, uh, within say evangelical, again, that broad term of evangelical uh, community um, in ways that um, is, is in the process of we think significantly um, has had a very significant already impact on how ev many evangelicals think about the interaction between science and Christian faith. And my understanding, correct me if I'm wrong, is that the Catholic faith embraces kind of an evolutionary creation model. My understanding, is that true? Yeah, it hasn't been, you know, has not been the same issue within Catholicism as right. it has been within uh, conservative uh, uh, Protestant Christianity. So, yeah, it's uh, it's it's not not been a a significant issue um, within within the, the Catholic uh, various statements that have been made uh, indicate yeah Catholics are okay with God having created through the evolutionary process. Yes, yes. Well, thank you so much, uh, Daryl, for being with us uh, today on Intersections. Daryl Falk is the author of the book Coming to Peace with Science and is Professor Emeritus of Biology at the Point Loma Nazarene University. Thank you for our conversation on Intersections, Dr. Falk. My privilege. Thank you for inviting me. Thank you for listening to this episode of Intersections. To subscribe, click follow in your podcast app and make sure to leave a review. All archived podcasts and information about our guests can be found on our website, intersectionspodcast.org. On our website, you can also listen to Faith Matters radio conversations featuring panels of spiritual leaders discussing how their faith traditions approach a variety of topics. You can contact Intersections by emailing info at intersectionspodcast.org. I'm Seth Shapiro, and join us on our next episode where we will continue exploring the crossroads of ideas on intersections. Intersections.